Hey, welcome to week two of Conduit for Change, where we're uh, looking at different inequalities in our community and, and, and trying to figure out ways that we can bring change in our communities, that we can make our communities a little bit more like heaven every single day. This week on our podcast, on our sermon cast, we're going to be talking about poverty. And I invited my friend Marley to come and tell us a little bit about what poverty looks like here in Baton Rouge, particularly in the Mid-City neighborhood and north, uh, uh, where she works uh, with uh, the community that she works with and particularly the organization she works for works with. Uh, Marley makes a big difference. Marley and her organization make a big difference in here in Baton Rouge. And I just wanted you an opportunity to hear from her. And so I'm excited for you to hear from her and hear a little bit more statistics and kind of the realities of poverty. And then after that, uh, we're going to turn to the second part of the sermon cast. We'll all talk a little bit about scripture and what scripture calls and uh, expects of us when it comes to poverty. I hope this podcast is helpful for you. And most importantly, I hope that if something within the uh, sermon cast uh, triggered something within you to either go make a difference or to have a conversation, I hope you will reach out to us. I hope you will reach out to me or your small group leaders or your friends or your coworkers and just have a conversation about this. And more importantly, I hope you will go out into the world and be a conduit for change when it comes to poverty. Well, without further ado, here is our sermon cast for this week. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to week two of our Conduit for Change series as we continue to talk about inequalities in our community and how we as a church are called to uh, fight against those inequalities and to make our world a little bit more like heaven every single day. This week, which is uh, week two, we're going to be talking about poverty. And I've invited my friend Marley to come and talk to us uh, about this. But uh, let me tell you a little bit about our friendship. So, I first met Marley like three years ago, I think it was, uh, when I was starting to get involved in Mid-City stuff. And uh, Marley was at every meeting I showed up at. So I knew she was somebody important in Mid-City. And then I got to serve on the Mid-City uh, Mardi Gras Ball committee with her. And uh, just as, as she was talking about Mid-City and about Baton Rouge in general, like I could tell that she genuinely loves this community, loves Baton Rouge, and genuinely wants to make life better for people. And then uh, eventually, this I think it was last year, I got to, I was elected to be on the Mid-City Merchants Board, and Marley's a part of that too, so I get to work closely with her on a lot of things now. And so uh, Marley is just a really awesome person, and I'm going to let her tell you a little bit more about herself and what she does, but let me introduce you to Marley. Well, thank you, Bernie. Yeah, I mean, I, I do genuinely love our Mid-City community. I'm, I'm born and raised here. My whole family lives here. But, you know, uh, Mid-City Redevelopment Alliance, which is where I work, I serve as the Director of Community Development. We are supporting organizations like those, like Mid-City Girl and Mid-City Merchants, which are making a Mid-City a better place to live. But a lot of our work is actually in the housing space and in, and in community development work, um, you know, fixing blight, turning vacant lots into affordable housing units. So it's it's really rewarding work, both the fun and colorful stuff I get to do, the creative stuff I get to do with local businesses and residents around, you know, the parade or White Light Night. Um, and it's really meaningful to get to to meet and, and understand the homeowners that we're helping every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love the work y'all do. And I've Thanks. been following y'all closely for a long time because I think a lot of times, well, one of the reasons I fell in love with Mid-City was it's for me it's the most culturally diverse part of baton rouge i mean that's where north baton rouge and south baton rouge meet and the work you all do really helps um at least for me it's a reflection of what the kingdom of god looks like because while um 
there are many systems in place to kind of divide North and South Baton Rouge. You all are working to make it, bring it together and to fight for uh, equality for people and uh, good housing uh, for people and uh, um, being able to, for people to get resources. It's, it's, the work you all do is really incredible. And so thank you for doing that. I really appreciate it. There's people who have been doing this work at Mid City Redevelopment for over 30 years, and you know I'm a part of just a small chapter, but uh, this work has been ongoing, and we've seen some of the fruits of that, right? I mean, we are the most racially diverse self-defined community in the city. Um, we are uh, by geography set up to to be an experiment for what it looks like to have a, um, a, a Baton Rouge that celebrates all parts of it and that invests in all parts of it. So it's. Um, I'm so you know privileged to, to help be a part of that work and the history of that work. And, and hopefully I will be able to see so many people come next, so many people inspired by the work we're doing today, Bernie, to, to, to push the needle even further, you know, because we have a really long way before we see uh, a Baton Rouge that's, that's fully invested, that's fully growing, that's safe for everyone, that has opportunities for everybody. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with that. Well, we can do the work together, uh, everybody in Mid-City and in Baton Rouge. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, so our conversation this week is around poverty. And one of the things that's been important in our conversations is to define um, what the conversation is. And so I think um, I mentioned this last week, but when we talk about difficult things like racism and poverty and human sexuality and so many other uh, inequalities that are in our communities, uh, it if we don't start from the same place, um, and what I mean by that is like the same definition, um, it's really hard, it's really easy to disagree and argue when it when we start talking about the actual thing because we're th- talking about different things. And so one of the things I want to do is to say, okay, what's our definition of poverty as we have this conversation? And to use that kind of as a foundation for this conversation for, for us and for people who are listening to this. So I'm curious, what what is... Um, what is your understanding or definition of poverty? I really appreciate starting this way because I think that there is, um, it's not talked about enough, but there is a fundamental difference or there's a fun, there's two fundamental ways that some people define poverty. Some people define poverty as just not having money right now. It's a transitory experience, one in which maybe after college, you know, you eat ramen in college and then eventually if you work hard enough, um, you will move out of poverty and into something better like the middle class. Um, this is not our definition of poverty. Uh, our definition of poverty and the poverty that we're working with, the poverty that's very real, um, is, is the poverty that is systemic, it's concentrated, and it is uh, inescapable for many. It's not... Um, it is not just a lack of money today. It is about not having had the education, not having had the resources, not even having had uh, sufficient food when you were a young child, not having stable housing, uh, being surrounded by crime. This is, you know, this is the term we use: concentrated poverty. And all of these, uh, you know, cor- corroborating all of these stacking issues mean that uh, a good chance is that you will live your life in poverty, unless somebody reaches out and provides that helping hand, provides that leg up um, to make a difference in your life. That is, whenever we're talking about poverty, that's the poverty that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. I, like, I like that. Um, 
you know, on Sunday, I was talking about this with our congregation, and I mentioned that uh, the poverty line is like about a little over $12,000 a year, like make income-wise. And I had a lot of college students come up to me, not a lot, but I had a couple who come up to me and said, well, I'm under that poverty line. Mm-hmm. And trying to differentiate, like, yes, that is very much true, um, but you also have um, certain things going for you that will allow you to escape that eventually. Like, you're only there for this season, and you have your family, you have your education, you have a bank account, you have all these things available to you that hopefully upon graduation you will no longer be living under that. Mm-hmm. The thing, like you said, is when it comes to poverty, there are some systems in place and um, that will, like it's it's really hard to escape that type of poverty. Yeah, and so I'm thankful for that definition. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, economic struggles on college campuses is a real problem and we have um and it's it's less a problem for those with access to resources and potentially you know family to support them uh it's a real problem it should be addressed we should be finding better ways to both fund our education and to to provide the financial support for students so that they can eat you know three square meals a day but the but poverty systemic poverty and escapable poverty uh, I mean, we have huge percentages of Baton Rouge living this way, and they will never. There is never an opportunity to escape. And, and their assumption is is that my grandparents lived in systemic poverty, my parents lived in systemic poverty, and my children, no matter how hard I work, will probably also have to work two jobs just to afford an apartment. I mean, we we're we're doing a study right now with the Housing First Alliance. And it's it's shocking the number of our community members at our housing cost burden. Housing cost burden meaning that they're spending, you know, upwards of 50% of their income just for housing, which leads li- like little to be able to afford educational opportunities for their kids, to be able to care for their aging parents, to be able to fix up their home whenever it starts to fall apart, to be able to pick up and move to a new job opportunity or train for a new job opportunity. Um, it's, uh, and, and that's how people really get trapped. Yeah. One, it's interesting you say that. So last year we had a a conversation uh, at the church about, um, how to deal with your finances. And one of the things that we talked about was, uh, a house should probably cost you about, uh, you know, no more than a third of your income because that leaves enough money for food, for uh, fixing stuff at the house, all that kind of stuff, right? And that's like the high end of what you should really be paying for housing, um, you know, give or take. But like yeah. to be at 50%, that's a lot of your income to go to a house. And for a lot of people, my guess is there is no choice, right? I mean, it just, no. that's what's available to them. Yeah, it's, um, you know, the the housing studies show that 51% of renters in Baton Rouge are housing cost burden, 51% wow. of renters, the number looks a lot better for homeowners, but uh, it's the renters who are stuck in the systemic poverty. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and that will never change. And I think what's also astounding is when you're going to some of these rental units, it is not, um, they're not safe. They have mold. They're contributing to the uh, instances of asthma in children. So it's it's really a chronic issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So um, one of the things I was doing some research for for this week, and one of the things I saw, I'm curious if you know about these numbers. Um, I read a report that said in the U.S. about 11 to 12 percent of people live, um, again, give or take, in poverty or below that poverty line. Um, 
And then in Louisiana, that number is closer to like 19%. But then I read one report that said in Baton Rouge, it's even closer to like 25% of people who live in poverty. Has that been your experience with some of the, the work that you all do? Yeah, it, it doesn't, that those numbers don't surprise me. Um, you know, we, and I think what would be really fascinating is to actually see those numbers by zip code. Mm. You know, Baton Rouge is a really big, you know, the city of Baton Rouge is a really big geographic area. And, and to be honest, there are two real realities. We are looking at really high incomes in, in one part of the spectrum and really low incomes on the other side of Baton Rouge. So I think that that, uh, to see the percentage of poverty in 7802, 7805 would be um, gut-wrenching for many people. Yeah. You know, we and we see the impacts of that whenever we look at, you know, this rising, the rising crime rate that we have today. I think there's a lot of people who maybe have certain privileges who are who are looking at this issue, issue and they're thinking, what is happening to our city? And for those of us who are doing this work on the ground, the question is not what is happening to our city. It's this is the result of disinvesting, you know, entire communities from from any sort of resource, any sort of access to opportunity. And when you trap people in poverty. Yeah. Well, and, you know, to, I think to speak of the systemic racism and or not racism, poverty and uh, to what you just said, um, like it's, it still blows my mind that there aren't any major grocery stores like north of Florida, pretty much, until you get to like far north Baton Rouge, uh, where the um, there's a lot more the uh, the wealth gap is like you can see it, um, but like there's no major grocery stores, there's no big coffee shops, there's no um, you know the, like just things like that that um, those should be things that are available to everybody and they're not which means that then mom and pop stop, uh, stores have to come in who have to charge a little bit more in order just to make some money, which then takes up more disposable income, right? I mean, like, that's just, um, it's a never-ending cycle of people being put, put in a position where it's really difficult to succeed in. Yeah. You know, it's, um, it's yeah, you may have heard the expression, it's expensive to be poor, and there's a lot of, you know, um, compelling research behind that statement. It is expensive to be poor. But when people say that, I think it, it provides a sense of hopelessness. And, and, and our work at Mid-City Redevelopment Alliance is, is not to make people feel hopeless about this issue. This issue matters. It's real. It's, it's, um, it's hurting so many, but it is not unmovable and it's not unfixable. Hmm. There's so many studies that show not only is it cheaper to invest in, you know, we in, uh, us and planners, and we call it infill development, and that's a fancy, you know, word to basically say the, the these old neighborhoods that existed, usually ones that have been abandoned, almost always because they're, and they were left to, you know, low income, you know, black citizens. Infill development, so activating these spaces does not cost that much. Not on the grand scheme, not as much as it would cost to do a new strip mall um, in our more suburban parts of town. It does not cost that much. You don't need to run new plumbing lines. You don't need to expand the city limits. You don't need to expand city services. City services are already happening there. So you're just creating revenue and in such a low cost way. So investing in these forgotten neighborhoods, investing in these forgotten families is actually very easy. We can provide affordable housing to people for 
not that much money and we can do it very quickly. It costs us about $100,000 and four months to build an affordable housing unit that we can sell to somebody that they can build wealth in for them and for generations to come. Hmm. And we can do multiple units at a time. So this problem is not incurable. We just have to decide we want to do it. I think it was the executive director of Habitat for Humanity who was asked, you know, how are we going to fix this housing? You know, we, we have a housing crisis. I think people don't see that in Baton Rouge because it's only affecting certain people. But 51% of your renters in your city are cost burden. You have a housing crisis. We have affordability crisis in our city. You know, and, and so when asked, how do you fix the affordability crisis, which gets a lot of press in L.A. and New York and Boston and these, you know, kind of big places. Uh, and, and he said, the will to do it. Hmm. You know, we um, and uh, Secretary Fudge, who's head of HUD, when also asked this question, you know, said uh, budget is a reflection of our priorities where we donate money is a reflection of our priorities or city budgets go. This country has the money to house the people we, you know, we call citizens, we call neighbors um, and to house them affordably. We just need the will to do it. It's not impossible. Yeah. Mm, I love that you said that. One of the questions that I asked of our, our church uh, just a couple of days ago was, uh, are we okay with the presence of inequality in our communities? Yeah. And I think for most of us, we would say the answer is no. And so we have to do something about it, right? I mean, to just say, no, but I'm going to keep living in my own comfort uh, doesn't really solve anything. So I'm curious, um, what are some things you would recommend if somebody's listening to this and they're thinking, oh, I want to do something about it? What's something they can do to help fix this? Yeah, it's. I mean, that's a really great the the question you posed to your um, to your church is, I think, a really powerful one, and and I think it's hard. I think it's hard to hear that question sometimes, um, but it but it's a it's a very important one. There is um there's a there's a great book, and it it, it looks into the cost of concentrated poverty. Concentrated poverty being that you know over fifty percent of the people who live in a neighborhood uh, are below the poverty line. And the value that is lost when you have two dilapidated homes right next to each other, they lose even more value than if it was just one dilapidated home. And the more dilapidated homes, the more value lost. He estimated that we are losing over a trillion in housing, just in value in our housing wow. market by having concentrated poverty. And he said, you know, we could move. We could move people. We could physically move and provide affordable opportunities in areas of opportunity, in, in areas of opportunity, in areas where there's economic, where there's grocery stores, where there are jobs, where there's affordable resources. Just moving people to where never at any point in time would your wealthy neighborhood over had over ten percent of the homes that were you know affordable to to low income people. That would drastically changed not only just the economic realities in this country, right? I mean, we're talking about people who would be moving back into to, to jobs or reducing the number of people who need government services. We're talking about, you know, improving educational opportunities for students so that they, they're they not, um, you know, maybe contributing to crime, which is essentially a form of economic opportunity for them, but instead are contributing to new ideas and, and to new inventions. So... There's a benefit for all of us to do this, to live next to, to provide opportunities to people who are currently living in concentrated and systemic poverty. So I think 
I always want to start there. Now, what do we do about it? How do we make sure that we that there's an opportunity for one of our neighbors to be wealthy and one of our neighbors to be a young family that doesn't have the same means as us? Uh, how do we have mixed income neighborhoods? A part of this is zoning. So mm -hmm. our love of living in um, little boxes on the hillside that all look just the same is preventing people to have entrances into that opportunity to have affordable housing units next to small single family homes, duplexes, triplexes, you know, these multiple price points of entry into neighborhoods where you have grocery stores, where you have jobs, where you have education and economic opportunity and you can move out of poverty. What's limiting that is Systemically, what's limiting that is our zoning laws. We're, we love single-family zoning. And then whenever there is an attempt to put an affordable housing uh, apartment unit in one's neighborhood, it is always fought by residents. So that's, I mean, that's that doesn't cost us anything to get comfortable with living next to people that don't look like us, that don't have the same resources as us, um, and that might need different housing types than us uh, to enter into uh, this, this neighborhood of promise. So that is, I think that's an easy way, just getting comfortable with that. You know, uh, Secretary Fudge said, you know, how much grass do you need to mow? Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> I think that that's a good way to put it. So that's definitely one thing. I mean, another big thing is, of course, donating to nonprofits that you believe in. So many organizations are doing work in this space, whether it's Habitat, UREC, Mid-City Redevelopment Alliance. Um, and then another thing is to get involved in, you know, people who say they don't care about politics usually get to say that because politics is, is working for them. And I think getting involved in this redistricting conversation, getting involved in education reform, um, you know, th there are many components to systemic poverty housing is one of them. It's the one that I focus on, but there are, there are so many. And, and to find your niche in that, I think, uh, will help you to stay involved and, and will help you to get involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's helpful. Thank you, thank you. Um, if, if, I, if I may, can I ask a follow-up question? Sure. I think one of the things I hear from people, because uh, I, I completely agree with your, your point about uh, being okay with living with people who don't, look like us and creating those entry points. So um, the one pushback I hear from people a lot mm -hmm. is, um, is it gonna, it's gonna devalue my house or it's gonna, you know, so what would you say to somebody who's wrestling with that? Yeah, it's, I mean, this is like incredible. This is why I think house, housing is one of the most segregated, housing schools and churches are the most segregated yeah. institutions. Um, but I have to imagine that housing will be the last to change um, because mm. it is so, it is about my children. It is about my home. It's about where I want to feel comfortable. And it's my greatest wealth builder. If I'm a middle-class American, mm. you know, that's, it, that's true for me too. And so uh, I, I, there's two parts to kind of rethinking that. One is the only reason having a lower income person live next to you would actually devalue your home is if no one wanted to live next to a lower income person, mm. right? I mean, so if, we, if we're talking about a culture shift where it's completely normal to live in a middle class, low, you know, where you have multiple classes all living next to each other, then it wouldn't lower your house value. 
your house value would still be determined by your access to, to resources and the quality of the home itself. So it only lowers your value because we believe it does. Right. Because we don't yep. want to live next to somebody. So we will. So we're going to say, well, I don't really want that, so I want to pay less for it. The other reason we believe that has to do with history. It has to do with when it has to do with blockbusting, has to do with redlining, and has to do with zoning again. So, uh, you know, before fair housing laws were passed, before affirmatively fair housing laws were passed, um, it was very difficult for, um, you know, our, our black neighbors to, to buy homes. And if they could, it had to be in areas, you know, specifically designated for, for black residents. And then what zoning boards would do is they would zone that you could put a gas station in that neighborhood. You could put, um, you know, uh, heavy refine, you know, manufacturing, these kinds of things that weren't, that we didn't want in our neighborhoods. We would just move to those neighborhoods. Um, then what we did is because there were so few housing options for black residents, I mean, so few of them, especially as they were moving north, this is particularly true, that um, they had to spend way more money, actually, way more money to buy these few homes. And so they were incredibly housing cost burden. Um, their homes were significantly more expensive, actually, than comparable homes in white neighborhoods, which means they didn't have money to fix porches or paint the house when I needed a fresh coat or do those types of improvements. And so when white residents would drive through these segregated neighborhoods, they would think, oh, well, this is why we segregated them. These, ho these houses don't look that great. It's because right. they can't afford to fix them up. And they have all these, this trap, this gas station and all these kind of, you know, pollution everywhere. And these plants are so close. It's so it's not great. <laughs> and so it's this history, this legacy that makes us believe that, um, uh, that predominantly black neighborhoods are going to be less valuable um, and, and it's pervasive. And, and I think we would have to have a cultural shift for that to not be true. And I think, um, and I really empathize with the importance of people's house, you know, home values as a, as a wealth driver. But I think this shift has to happen one, one person at a time. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally agree with that. You know, I, there was a, some statistics that I read about like predominantly black neighborhoods tend to pay higher interest rates. Their houses tend to be devalued more than they actually are mm -hmm. um, by like thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, and like all these things, like it's, it's, there's, there's these assumptions that we have made about um, uh, um, particularly low income neighborhoods that just, it's this it's they're not true they're not real and so it's important yeah. to look into that and to understand why these neighborhoods became what they became um you know one of my um one thing that's important for me as we look at our communities is um would the community the way it is today um does it reflect what heaven is going to look like someday and mm -hmm. if my answer is no then we need to do something about it and as I look at our housing situation and poverty, really in Baton Rouge in general, like it is not reflective of what the, what heaven looks like. Yeah. And you know, I, there we are not like you said, as a country, we're not a country that has. I mean, there are limited resources, but we have enough resources for everybody to live well. Um, 
And the same thing goes for heaven. And my understanding of who God is, God is a God of endless um, uh, resources. And therefore, we're called to make sure that all of us can experience this world, this life, these communities, these just abundantly. And if we're all willing to, if we're all willing to, um, everybody can enjoy life and can have a good house, can have access to resources, can uh, live well. And I think it's our job to help make this world a little bit more like heaven every single day. So thank you for the work you do. Thank you for uh, your passion for this. I knew you were the right person to talk about this because I know you care about this a lot. So thank you for all of that. Uh, Let me just ask you one last question. Um, If people want to reach out to you uh, and ask some more questions, is there a way that they can reach out to you? Yeah, you can email me um, at, you know, Marley, M-A-R-L-E-E at midcityredevelopment.org. Uh, you know, definitely connect with me if these are issues that you're passionate about. There's there's a lot of work to be done around this space. Um, I, I think it doesn't get, uh, you know, poverty, I think, you know, is a really powerful motivator to many who are, who are interested in social justice. But but housing is really, a, I think, the cornerstone, but often forgotten in the conversation. So if you're interested in housing, if you're interested in other components of systemic poverty, I can help connect you to, to all that work. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Uh, so yeah, I really wanna encourage you all, reach out to Marley, reach out to the Mississippi Redevelopment Alliance. I know they do some awesome work on all levels, whether it's housing, whether it's cleaning up the neighborhoods, mm-hmm. uh, they do a lot of really good work. So I really wanna encourage you all to team up with them and uh, be a part of the solution. Thank you. So thank you again so much for being here. And uh, yeah, thank you. Of course, thank you. As I was doing research this week, I came across a story of a mother named Rachel. Her story not only captivated me, it broke my heart. Rachel was diagnosed with cancer at the age of 42. Luckily, it was caught early enough that the doctors believed they could perform surgery to remove the cancer, and after a couple months, she could go back to her life as normal. Great news, right? Unfortunately, some problems quickly came up. First, the price of surgery was a bit out of their price range. Rachel and her husband, along with their three kids, lived paycheck to paycheck and had very little disposable income. They by no means considered themselves poor, but having to cover the cost of an unexpected surgery was not something they had prepared for. Understanding how necessary this surgery was, they intentionally came up with a plan so that Rachel could undergo surgery. Now, here was their plan. After looking at their finances, they realized that they had enough money for Rachel to take a temporary leave of absence from work so that she could have the surgery and have a couple of months uh, to focus on getting better. And if all went well and if all went as planned, by the time their savings ran out, she would be ready to go back to work and slowly live, uh, slowly their lives would go back to normal. Unfortunately, the surgery did not work. Neither did the second. In fact, It wasn't until the third surgery that they were able to remove all of the cancer and she was able to actually begin her journey towards a full recovery. By that time, their whole lives had been turned upside down. See, because they had depleted their savings and Rachel couldn't go back to work yet, her husband started working an extra job in order to bring in some extra money in order to pay for the bills. But doing so quickly became a lot for him. And in the midst of this, the medical bills arrived, and his response was to start drinking heavily as a coping mechanism. As this issue got worse, Rachel, for the first time in their entire marriage, 
saw her husband exhibit aggressive and destructive behaviors. And it happened so often that one day she decided to pack her stuff and leave her house with her kids after being in that home for seven years. Now, with whatever money she was able to scrape together, she rented a small apartment for about a month, hoping to find a better option or a cheaper option, and hopefully even find a well, a good paying job. But since all of her money went to paying for housing, they now had no money left for food and any other expenses. And as embarrassed as she felt, Rachel decided to swallow her, pl- her pride and apply for government assistance. Now, this put her in a very difficult dilemma, though. While the food stamps were helpful, they still weren't enough to feed her whole family adequately. And she tells stories of how she skipped meals sometimes so that her kids could have full meals later in the day. And uh, because of this, it meant that she needed to find a way to bring in extra income. Now, fortunately, her boss did want her back. She worked as a secretary at a, at a local business, and her boss wanted her back. But unfortunately, if she did return to work, she would no longer be eligible for food stamps and the government housing that she was receiving at the time. In other words, the government assistance on its own was not enough. Her job alone that was being offered to her still was not enough either. Rachel needed both, uh, both in, uh, her job and the assistance in order to break out of this endless cycle of poverty and put her life back together. But having both just wasn't an option. You know, what I find completely mind-blowing about this story is that in Louisiana, it's estimated that somewhere between 25 to 26 percent of our population lives in a very similar experience as Rachel and her kids. 25 to 26 percent. That's about one in every four people. And as Marley reminded us earlier, the number is probably even higher in some parts of Baton Rouge if it was divided by zip code. Now look, I don't have an easy solution for solving poverty in our community. The reality is that no matter how hard we try to eradicate poverty, at least for me, it feels like it's always there. And that no matter how hard I try, I only make a small dent in solving the problem of poverty. Do you ever feel that way? There's this tale, a story, of a little girl who goes to the beach. And she notices that thousands of starfish have been washed up on the beach after a terrible storm. As a response, she chooses to walk up to a starfish, pick it up, and throw it back into the ocean. Now, over and over again, she makes her way down the beach, picking up one starfish, throwing it back into the ocean, and going on to the next starfish. After a while of her doing this, a man walks up to her and says, Little girl, why are you doing this? I mean, look at this beach. You can't save all the starfish. You can't even begin to make a difference, a meaningful difference. This little girl, a little defeated, looked down at the starfish and thought about, this, about what this man said to her. But then she reached down, grabbed a starfish, and threw it out into the ocean as hard as she could. Then she looked at the man and she said, well, at least I made a difference for that one. And she continued to make her way down the beach, onto the next starfish, after the other, after the other. I love this story. Because the man is right. She is probably unable to make a big difference, a major difference, when it comes to fixing the problem uh, before her. And there is no way that she could possibly help all the starfish that have washed up on the beach, right? Like, this is a lot. It's a massive issue. But for as many as she could, she was determined 
to make a difference. And that's what I love about this story. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11, God says this to the Israelites. Since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. Now, I love this verse for two reasons. First, it affirms that the issue of poverty is huge, and we may never be able to fix it completely. But just because the issue is big, it does not give us permission to do nothing about it. God makes it very clear to the Israelites that no matter how big the need in their community may be, it is their responsibility to care for the needs of the poor in their land. God makes it very clear to them that no matter how big the issue may seem, how insurmountable it may feel, they have to care for the poor. See, the way God uh, cares for poverty and those who live in poverty is by using us to make a difference in their lives. See, they had to learn how to be generous and, and, ha- and to make sure that all people, and no matter who they were, had access to, to any simple human need. Friends, the same is true for you and I. We are how God eradicates poverty in our communities. And I get it. The problem is huge and at times feels overwhelming and like there's nothing we can do to fix it. And in those moments, you have to know that it's our job as the church and as fellow Christians to step up and help meet the needs of the poor. It is our job to help provide food and shelter and resources, to advocate for the poor, and most importantly, to continue to make a difference day in and day out. And while you alone may never solve the issue of poverty and the inequalities that it creates, you can make a difference. And if you make a difference, and then the next person makes a difference, and the person after them makes a difference, before you know it, a huge difference will have been made when it comes to the issue of poverty. Friends, I pray that you and I may be conduits for change in our community when it comes to poverty. And as you do, may you give yourself the grace to start even if your actions feel small. If you're in Baton Rouge, you can volunteer with organizations like Mid-City Redevelopment and uh, even the One Stop. If you're not in Baton Rouge, you can find some more national organizations like your local food bank or even organizations like Habitat for Humanity. You can even get together with your coworkers or your small group or even family members and collect non-perishable food items to deliver to different organizations in town. You can even uh, collect or donate money to organizations. You can even begin your own projects that, while small or may feel small, will still make an impact towards eradicating poverty and the systems that keep it in place. Let me tell you how small these projects can be. I have a friend who would get his uh, part of his paycheck every Sunday. He'd buy a whole bunch of hamburgers at McDonald's and then just walk around passing them around to any homeless person he saw. I mean, any little thing we do can help make a difference in eliminating poverty in our community. Friends, like the little girl who looked down the beach and saw way too many starfish to make a difference, may we, like her, Choose to make a difference anyway, no matter how small it may seem. May we be conduits for change in the face of poverty. Amen.
I hope you found this sermon to be meaningful and relevant to your life. If you'd like to dive deeper, I invite you to visit midcity.church slash sermoncast and click on the current sermon series. There you can find a home sheet for this sermon that includes the scriptures that we talked about, questions to wrestle with, and a challenge to live out this week. While you're on the website, if you'd like to make a financial contribution to our ministry here at Mid-City Church, you can click the Give button in the top right corner. If you're new to the sermon cast, I invite you to text the word HERE, H-E-R-E, to the phone number 225-307-0662 and fill out a Connect card so that we can get to know you. I'm so glad you joined us today, and I look forward to seeing you next week.